0: So let's go back, we're in the very first paragraph still. We haven't left the first paragraph and I wanna remind you, we are focusing on one single word. Uh, I'll do my marked copy. What's the word? Marriage between an, a man and woman is ordained. Family is ordained. But what's the word? Family is central. Where does Heavenly Father put his family? In every aspect, right? His time. Where does he spend his time? With his family. Perspective. Priorities. Family is central. And so... If we really want the happiness that Heavenly Father has, where do we place family? So we're, 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 we're still focused on that, placing family central. If Heavenly Father, the happiest of all beings, the most powerful of all beings, places his family central, then watch the message. Your greatest source of happiness is placing family central. Your greatest source of pain is not placing family central. And so what we've decided to do, what, what I'd like to do is so many times when we read that the family's under attack and that the, this is a warning about attacks on the family, so many times we point the finger out there and say, the family's on attack from the outside. And that's certainly true, right? But I think what this paragraph is saying is perhaps the greatest threat to my family is going to be caused by me. I'm the problem. Not some outside force. I'm the problem. And if they've written a document to warn us about the disintegration of the family, who's the audience? I'm the audience. And I think we all need to step up and have a little Lord is it I attitude. I am the greatest potential cause of my family's disintegration. So let's look at the gospel. Let's bring in the thousands of other scriptures into this one single piece of paper and say, what are the scriptural lessons that can be applied to keeping the family central. Do you remember that list we started? Okay, so we've made four, we've put four on our list. Do you remember what they were? Number one, gospel message number one, know the difference between things that come to naught, but often are set at naught, and things that never come to naught, and need to make sure are not set at naught. What in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of all the things, temples, mission, priesthood, what will never come to naught? Will the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles be an eternal organization? As, as you know, the Salt Lake Temple was built with very thick walls to, to last for a long time, even the Salt Lake Temple, Will it come to naught someday? It will. But what will never come to naught? Family. So number one, know the difference, I won't write these, you know the, number two, we talked about, or even your church calling is not as important as your family. Now, the only exception to that that I could probably think about is the one church calling that takes you away from your family for 18 months or two years. You could argue that for that moment, I'm gonna serve a mission and my family's gonna be left behind. But everything else, do you remember the first presidency was rebuked for neglecting their families? Number three, family relationships must be nourished or what are you doing to them? You are neglecting them. Relationships must be nourished. Now, just a piercing question for every one of you. Do you have someone in your family and your relationship with that person is neglected and it's dying? If you don't nourish, it will die. Family relationships are either nourished or neglected. If they're nourished, they take root and produce fruit. If they're neglected, they shrivel and you cast it out. So, even if the problem might be the other sibling, could you do something to nourish the relationship? Find a way to nourish relationships. a relationship with somebody who won't let you have a relationship now again let's let's not be fooled does love of all people mean I should put myself in a toxic environment absolutely not and I think we know that but are there ways to are there ways to nourish a relationship that's toxic in other ways well let me ask you this question Jeffrey It's good to see you. You got a comment? Yeah, so um, a little bit or probably about a year and a half ago, my sister decided to not talk to my family anymore. She sent us a text message saying she wants nothing to do with us. She wants nothing to do with the church and never to contact her again. Um, We still prayed for her. We still told her we loved her. We'd send her text messages until she blocked our numbers anyways. Um, and then about three months ago she came back and started talking to us again. And so, like, just if you give them their space, but don't give up on the relationship because you can come back from most things. Yes. And I would kinda I would love that, Jeffrey. I think that was brilliant and i would illustrate that i would ask the question tell me how heavenly father handles people who are toxic to him are there does he have children who feel that their relationship is toxic and they don't want to have anything to do with him what does he do that's my answer don't let it be my fault that the relationship was neglected. I will do what I can. Oh, I'm tempted to play. Should we watch it? Guillermo. Does that ring a bell? Labor of Love. Is that the one that's like Groundhog's Day? Yeah, it's like Groundhog's Day. Should we watch it briefly? Yes, we'll pull it up, pull it up. I just, I, I love the spirit of this because he saw the relationship as what? Duty. And he never really connected until he saw the relationship as love. So let's do it. I think this, I think this would be worth pausing and watching. Uh, not that one, this one. No, nope, not that one, this one.
1: Had more reads
0: with and than that Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds like you tried trying to say my name with like that. Yeah, and Peary tells you he stole your bike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where'd I put it? Surprisingly, for the he underreacted because he was in this chain of every day is the same, but I just like. Oh, that's so weird. You to no, you would freak out. <laughs> okay, I don't have it. I thought I had it. But find that and watch it. Okay, so let's pick up our list. Oh, we did one more. Remember where Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house, and Martha says, carest thou not that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to stop listening to you and come serve. Now, putting on a meal is important, but what did Jesus say? Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled in many things, but one thing is needful. Part of keeping family central is the wisdom to say, what's needful? What's needful? And again, maybe what's needful is more wholesome recreational activities. Maybe what's needful is more work. So let's pick up our list. Lessons from the scriptures about keeping the family central. Now, I'm going to present this one with the words of C.S. Lewis, but trust that we could go into the scriptures and show this lesson. I want to talk about love. Because one of the things that we need to understand, one of the nine principles, is love. But unfortunately, we corrupt the word love. So what is love? Is love an emotion? Do you feel love? Now, if you feel love, if love is an emotion, then what's the problem with that? Feelings always change. Feelings change. So, this idea of being in love, the emotion of being in love. You met someone, you're in love. That's the emotion. Without fail, what's going to happen to that emotion? It will change. Now, if you marry based on that emotion, and then the emotion changes, what do people often conclude? I failed, and we break up the marriage. Love is not merely an emotion. Clearly, love has emotions associated with it. But do you think I ever make Heavenly Father angry at me? Does he stop loving me when his feelings for me are negative? If love is an emotion, then what happens when I'm angry at you? I don't love you. My emotions for you are negative. I don't feel kind feelings towards you. Does that mean I no longer love you? Can you be out of love and still love. It's not like a cookie jar. <laughs> that's, that's the misunderstanding that causes us to not keep family central. I love the writings of C.S. Lewis, so we're going to use C.S. Lewis for this. Oh, whoops, wrong one. So I just want to do this together. Being in love is a good thing. That's the Twitter patient. That's the, oh, I'm so in love with her. Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last. But feelings come and go. In fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending quote, "They lived happily ever after, what does that mean? They lived happily ever after. If' it's, if it's meant to mean, they felt that for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married. Then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? I can always tell when I have a student in love, their grades do this. Whoosh. Because they're obsessed. They don't want to do anything else but hang out with the person they love. They don't want to do homework. They don't want to. And can you imagine living in that state for 50 years? What would happen to your life? There goes your home, there goes your home not your homework. <laughs> now. Hey, you lose homework you don't have to do house bills. Hey. That's a plus. That's a plus. Yeah. But listen to how he, what he continues. But of course, ceasing to be in love does not mean ceasing to love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. I think that was the most beautiful way to word that. Because are there feelings associated with love? Of course. But it's not merely a feeling. So what is love? At its heart and soul and core, what is love? I think it's a business agreement, a partnership. It's a commitment. It is a choice. Love is a choice to be in. I'm in. I choose her. I'm sold. Every day. I'm sold. I choose her every day, every moment. I wake up in the morning and I choose her. I go to sleep at night and I choose her. And in those moments where she's mad at me, she still chooses me. That's the difference between love and in love. Love is a choice. I love his definition here. Love in this second sense, love is distinct from being in love, is not merely in a feeling. It is deep unity Maintained by the will. I will myself to be with you. I choose it. Maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. I make me being with you my habit. And I get help from Heavenly Father. Reinforced by the grace with both ask and receive from God they can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other do you think there are moments where heavenly father is angry at me and yet in those moments where he's angry at me does he still choose to be committed to me i mean he doesn't strike you with he fire he does not give up and walk away even when i've made him angry That's love. Do you see what most people misunderstand? The emotion, the thrill is going to end. And if what you're left with is not love and commitment and I'm sold and I choose, then that family is gonna break apart. Love is choice. Love is determination. Love is every day, I choose you. They can have this love even when they don't like each other. They can retain this love even when each would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this engine, it is on this love that the engine of marriage and family is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. What usually attracts a couple to each other? It's usually attraction, physical attraction. They fall in love with each other. Now what happens if they fall in love with each other but never choose to love each other? Then when the in love phase is over, so is the marriage. Or just relationship if you're a college student. Or, or anything. So watch where he goes here. Um, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, that will always die. The thrill and the excitement, the newness will always die away. They think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change. But what's going to happen when they change? I was so in love with her and now we're not, so I want a divorce. So then I run over here because now I'm so in love with her. What's going to happen over here? Same thing. Exact same thing. Because I've made thrills my diet, not love. Um... Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go live there. Does this mean that it would be better not to live in the beautiful place? By no means. If you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of happiness. What is more, the very people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the longer-lasting happiness are then most likely to meet thrills in some quite different direction. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It's simply no good to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die. Go through that period of death to the quieter happiness that follows. And you will find you are th- living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that we find many, many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly and hopelessly trying to get back the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. Wow, that's deep. Can I illustrate when my oldest daughter was about 13, she was babysitting. She had some babysitting money. And one day she wanted a set of non-prescription glasses. She just thought it was cool to wear glasses. So she found this non-prescription set. They were so cute and she loved them. She paid $25 for non-prescription glasses because she loved how she looked in them. That was a lot of her babysitting money. Are you sure? Yes, I'm so happy. I'll wear them all the time. Tell me what happened. How long did they last? A A week. And then the thrill was gone. Now Katie wears glasses yeah. because she loves them. No, she <laughs> no, Hear me out. I'm hearing you out, but I'm not believing She you. is committed to them. No, she's not. <laughs> <laughs> she is today. As her I sister. Can... As her sister, I can't verify. I only read some for one eye and just not wear them. She's I wear them. Wear them. okay so <laughs> those of us who wear them all the time yeah those of us who wear corrective lenses all the time don't do it because it's thrilling to his contact lenses. yes see the difference love versus in love how about a musical instrument a lot of people are in love with playing a musical instrument, right? They fall in love with the idea of the musical instrument. And then musical instruments are hard. Not when using time. And when the thrill goes away, you have two choices. You either love the instrument and you stay committed, even when you don't want to. Or you never play the instrument again. Now, do you see how that applies to relationships? Um, marriage, children. I know a lot of people that just love babies. Babies are so cute. And then babies get very hard. <laughs> and not so cute. Acne disgusting. If you are in love with your baby, what's going to happen? If you're only in love with your baby. Neglect. I don't want to do this. And then all of a sudden you begin to neglect the relationship because it's not thrilling anymore. Do you see what breaks families apart? It's not thrilling. It's work. It was thrilling, and the thrill has gone. Suggestion number five, lesson number five, is don't be fooled by, don't misunderstand the difference between being in love and love. Now tell me how Jesus, which one of those does Jesus feel towards me? It is not the thrill that drives him. It is the the determination. He loves me. Do you think there are moments where he doesn't like me? Probably. And yet he still chooses to be committed. Family runs on the engine of love, not on the thrill of being in love. Now, that leads to the next one. Turn with me to 2 Samuel, no, 2 Kings chapter five. Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter five. You know this story. This is the story of Naaman and Elisha. Naaman is a Syrian who has leprosy. He hears that there's there's a prophet in Israel and he comes to Israel with all of the gifts that he thought it would require to buy a miracle. He comes with all this money. Elisha doesn't even go out to see him, right? What does he do? Sends the servant out, and the servant says, go wash seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman almost walks away. That's ridiculous. That's what's going to do it. That's what's going to do it. That's what's going to save my marriage. That's what's going to make marriage work. So he almost runs away. Luckily, his servant says, my master, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much better to do the small thing? Okay, fine. So he goes down into the river to wash and he bathes once in the river. Now, what would you do after coming up out of the river the first time? Tell me what you would do. What are you looking for? Is it gone? Has it changed? How much leprosy has fallen after one dip in the river? None. And right then and there is a temptation to do what? Quit. Quit. I know a lot of one dip Mormons. They tried it. It didn't work. And so they walk away. I dipped once in the river. I don't see any major changes. I'm getting out of the river. How much leprosy is gone after two dips? How about the sixth dip? I know a lot of six dip Mormons. They stayed for a while. But after six dips, there was no change. The leprosy was not gone. So they got out of the river and they went home. When does the leprosy fall? Seventh dip. Seven dips in the river and then the leprosy. Some blessings come after seven dips in the river. Family, relationships are those kind of blessings. If you walk away after six dips and it's not this magical thing that I thought it was, you're going to miss the miracle. You see this so many times in the scriptures. Do you remember the people of Nephi, the people of the Nephites got righteous within 19, then 13 years of Jesus coming, then then nine years, and then seven years, and then five years. And they were righteous and they just kept going. They were so close to Jesus coming. And then all of a sudden, three years before his, his coming, What happened? They couldn't do it. And they weren't there when he came. Family takes commitment and long time relationship. Family is a seven dip miracle. It's a seven dip blessing. It takes commitment and determination and I'm not gonna walk away after one dip. And all of a sudden it didn't change. I'm committed. Keeping family central is a seven dip blessing. And there are other things that bring quicker rewards. And because of that, we're going to get, this will get to our next one. Because people often turn to other things that bring quicker rewards, they do not stay till the seventh dip. Relationships are seven dip blessings. And far too many times do we walk away. How many days before the rain did Noah's family get on the boat? Same number. Can you imagine being his teenage son and you wake up the next day and you look outside and what do you see? Fish. No rain, no rain. You get off the boat. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. How much rain do you see on the sixth day? No rain. What are all your friends doing? They're laughing at you. And it's been six days. Family is one of those things. The blessings of family are seven dip blessings. And they take time and they develop. And if you walk away after one or two or six dips, you've missed the blessing. Now that leads to the next one. So know the difference between being in love and love. Relationships that are based on the thrill of the relationship, marriages that are built on the thrill of the marriage will break up if that then doesn't translate into love. That's the problem. So let me just talk about seven dip blessings versus things that bring quicker blessings. Let me have you turn to Joseph Smith Matthew and the Pearl of Great Price. Now this week in Come Follow Me, we're studying this very topic. So this is an appropriate one to throw in as it applies to family. So Come Follow Me is all about the Savior's Mount of Olives servant. Now, Tuesday of his last week, if we draw his last week, Sunday is his triumphal entry. Monday, he curses the fig tree. Tuesday, he spends all day teaching in the temple. This is the show me the tribute, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he teaches in the temple. And then Tuesday night, he takes his disciples out to the Mount of Olives. On the way out, he points out the temple stones and he says, all of these are gonna come down. And he had just told the Jews, the next time you see me will be in the clouds of glory. So verse four, tell me what they ask him. Joseph Smith Matthew is the JST of Matthew chapter 24. Joseph made so many changes to that chapter where Jesus is talking that it's now in the Joseph Smith translation, canonized in the Pearl of Great Price. So verse 4, what are the two questions they ask? It's kind of, each one's a two-part question. What's question number one? When will will Jerusalem be destroyed? When will the temple, you just mentioned the temple's going to be destroyed. When will the temple be destroyed? That was question number one. Answer, he didn't give it, but we know looking back in history, 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Titus came in and slaughtered Jerusalem. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem since that day. He tore down the temple, and it's never been built back. That question went from verse 4 to the semicolon in verse 21. Now, what's the second question in verse 4? What are the signs of thy coming? What's, when's the second coming? Now, how many times has Jesus asked about the second coming, and he doesn't answer? So many times, right? Joseph Smith. I was praying to know the, the signs of the second coming. The Lord basically said, stop asking. I'm not gonna tell you. Day of Ascension. Hey, is this it? When are you gonna come again? He doesn't answer, but this time he answers. Starting with the semicolon in verse 21, he starts talking about the second coming. Now I'm gonna make an assumption that I think is a pretty safe assumption. If I were to ask you, what did you love most about the movie? Is it a safe assumption, assumption that the first thing out of your mouth is what you love the most? If we're going to ask Jesus, what are your biggest concerns about the second coming? Is it a safe assumption that the first thing out of his mouth is his biggest concern? His second is the second. The third thing out of his mouth is his third concern. Isn't it a safe assumption that what he's about to start talking about is his biggest concern about the, second, about the latter days? So, read from the semicolon in verse 21 through 22. What is Jesus' biggest concern about the latter days? His number one concern about the day in which you and I live. What's his biggest concern? That even the very elect are going to be fooled by an imitation. Look at verse two, these imitations will fool the very elect. Tell me what is perhaps one of the number one reasons family isn't central in the lives of many Latter-day Saints. Tell me why, what is central? Something that they have been foolishly convincing yourselves will make them happier. Are you fooled by an imitation? The Savior's biggest concern is don't be fooled by an imitation. Now, we, sh- we should see that in the scriptures all the time. So, Lehi has a dream about a tree. What's the purpose of the tree? Turn there. Turn to 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 10. What's the purpose of the tree? First Nephi 8, verse 10. Tell me the purpose of the tree. To make, to make you happy. Does family have something to do with the tree? The greatest sources of happiness. If the tree is to make you happy, there has to be something about family here. Now, here's the fascinating thing. When they describe the fruit of the tree, it uses eight words. They use eight words. The first word, verse 11, what's the first word used to describe the fruit of the tree? Sweet. But then what does it say? It doesn't say the fruit was sweet. It says the fruit was most sweet. Sweet above all that is sweet. Every single time it uses a word to describe the fruit, it uses a superlative. It was most sweet. Oh my goodness, I can't spell. Give me another word in that same verse. It is white. It is the most, full of the most amount of light. How about the next verse? Give me another word. Joy, right? And what does it say about joy? Describing of the fruit of the tree, what does it say about joy? Exceedingly great joy. If you were to really pinpoint and say, what brings you exceedingly great joy? What is sweet above all that is sweet? Family has something to do with that, right? Don't you see family written into the tree? There are eight words and every single time it's a superlative, desirable, great, pure, beautiful. In other words, the Book of Mormon is saying the love of God and the things that are central to God are the most sweet about of all things. But in Lehi's dream, there was an imitation. There was a fake tree. And people are fooled by the imitation. And they let go of the tree to go where? To the building. And yet everyone who lets go of the tree to go to the building ends up drowning in the river. There is no happiness that's lasting outside of the tree. But they were fooled by an imitation. And kind of going along with that was like everlasting. The tree would probably have roots, yeah. whereas the building is uh, to not even have to It's going fu- it's gonna, to it's gonna come to naught. Yeah. So let me give you an example. Tell me why people drink. Why do people drink alcohol? Escape. It is an imitation for the, what they're really searching for. What is it that they really want? What they really want is the fruit of the tree. But there's a fake fruit of the tree that's within reach in a bottle. And so they take the imitation. They're fooled by an imitation. And so they walk away from the tree, drowned in the river, because they, just like Jesus said, the biggest concern about the latter days is fooled by an imitation. So let's talk about the biggest imitation trees in our day. Nephi saw it. Nephi saw the latter days. So Jesus says the biggest problem with the latter days is even the very elect will be fooled by an imitation, and then Nephi saw our day. Now remember Nephi was told, you're not gonna write it, but he didn't, it didn't prevent him from commenting on it. Nephi saw our day and commented, but didn't write about it. Turn to 1 Nephi chapter 22. You're gonna find all these little wonderful comments about our day But Nephi isn't going to tell us what's going to happen. So, for example, look at verse 13. One of the things that surprised Nephi is how the world ends. We kind of have the idea that good wins in the end, right? Avengers, after they all die, and then that was a horrible movie. You can't have the good guys die. In the end, good guys always have to win. That's what makes a good hero movie. The good guy comes back and wins. But in the end of the world, that's not how it ends. Good does not defeat evil in the end of the world. And if you're surprised by that, so was Nephi. Verse 13, how does the world end? First Nephi twenty-two thirteen: 13, how does the world end? Good doesn't defeat evil. evil. Evil defeats evil. Just like the Jaredites. That's how the world's going to end. Verse 17, what else does he see? He says, look, I can't tell you how it's going to end. I can't tell you. I'm looking at it, but I'm like, I can't tell you how it ends. But one thing I can say is what? Don't worry, guys, you're going to be fine. Don't worry. The righteous need not fear. He keeps saying that over and over and over again. But then he comments on the imitations he sees in our day. Go to verse 23. Nephi says, here are five, and I would say, here are the five greatest fooling imitations that cause people to put family out of center. What's the first one? What's the first church that Nephi saw in our day? Getting gained. Gain. What's the biggest imitation happiness that there is? So many people, take family out of the center of their life because of why? What's at the center of their life? And what do they end up realizing in the end? Does anyone know the name Notch Person? Does that ring a bell, Notch Person? Anyone heard of Minecraft? Notch Person is the Swede that created Minecraft. He sold it to Microsoft for... $2 billion. He got a check for $2 billion. How much does that change your life to get a check for $2 billion? And then people began to notice some tweets he was sending out. These are actual tweets from Notch Person. After the sale of Minecraft, for $2 billion. Ready? They're not nice. Let me share a few of Notch Person's tweets. These are the cleaned up ones. <laughs> okay, ready? Needs are tweet number one The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying, and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. It's an actual tweet from Notch Person, billionaire. Here's another one. Hanging out in Abiza with a bunch of my friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. In Sweden, I'll sit around and wait for my, family, my friends with jobs and families to have time to do stuff. He didn't say stuff. Watching my reflection in the monitor. Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a more normal person instead. Guess what he learned? The hard way. He was fooled by an imitation happiness. It is an imitation happiness. Go ahead. So there is this really popular person, and she says, and and, and one of her quotes was that when you're put on a pedestal for a certain amount of time, you become disconnected with the people that put you there in the first place and it's a fake imitation happiness that won't make you happy. You've been fooled by an imitation. Let me give you one more on money. Um, Anyone love Shakespeare? Sir Sir Thomas Wolsey? It's a true story written into the book of Shakespeare. Elder Holland said it this way. Let me read from Elder Holland. I speak of the confusion and ultimate destruction of a very powerful man One who was on the stage of events at that pivotal Tudor period in England when the whole world was changed because Henry III wanted a divorce. My, upon what small hinges the doors of personal and world history swing. In Henry's determination to be rid of Catherine of Aragon and gain the hand of Anne Boleyn, he turned to his counselor and confidant, the second most powerful man in the British realm, the masterful Thomas Wolsey. Son of an uneducated Suffolk butcher, Wolsey's driving ambition and immense talent brought him rapid rise through Oxford University and into the church, where he quickly became chaplain to Henry VII. Then when young Henry VIII ascended to the throne, Wolsey's fortunes prospered even more dramatically. In addition to high church position, including Archbishop of York and finally Cardinal, he became the most influential member of the King's Privy Council. Quickly enough, he was the controlling figure in all matters of state and even in every political move made by his monarch. He loved, he loved display and wealth. He lived in royal splendor and reveled in his power. Then Anne Boleyn came into the scene. Young Henry was determined to move heaven and earth, heaven, earth, Catherine, and the church doctrine to have her. But the obstacles were nearly unsurmountable. He told Wolsey to surmount them. Woolsey could not and did not. The failure proved to be fatal. In spite of such a remarkable and virtually unprecedented rise in political power, Woolsey's fall was sudden and very complete. Stripped of every office he held and all pro- property he possessed, he was accused of tre- treason and ordered to appear in London. In great distress, he set out for the capital be- to be tried on the way he fell ill and died now shakespeare wrote a play about this whole story and this is what shakespeare wrote thomas wolsey saying farewell a long farewell to all my greatness this is the state of man today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes tomorrow blossoms bears his blushing honors thick upon him the third day comes a frost a killing frost And when he thinks, good easy man, full surely his greatness is a ripening, nips his root. And then he falls, as do I. I have ventured like little little wanton boys that swim on bladders. This many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth, my high-blown pride, at length broke under me and now has left me. Weary and old with service to the mercy of an old rude stream that must forever hide me vain pomp and glory of this world i hate ye i feel my heart now opened oh how wretched is that poor man that hangs on prince's favors there is betwixt that smile we would aspire to that sweet aspect of princes and their ruin more pangs and fears than wars or women have and when he falls he falls like lucifer never to hope again his protege, Cromwell, enters the room and then speaks quietly with tears. And Wolsey commands Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambition. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his maker, hope to win by it? Love thyself last. Cherish those hearts that hate thee. Corruption wins not more than honesty. O oh, Cromwell, Cromwell. Had I but served my God with half the zeal, I served my king. He would not in mine age have left me naked to mine enemies. Farewell, the hopes of court. My hopes in heaven do dwell. Don't be fooled by an imitation. Now we'll pause there. We'll pick it up in two weeks. No class next week. Remember, I have to. No, never mind. We'll pick it up next week. It's my next class. I have to tell them I, there's no class. So we'll pick this up and we'll do number two. Fooled by an imitation happiness that pushes family out of the center and replaces it with something that will not bring you the happiness that family will. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.